0: Welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. My name is Andrew Grieve and I look forward to being your host today on this exciting episode. Welcome to Discover Pediatric Surgery. Today we are in Varisi in Italy with uh, Valerio Gentilino. He's a pediatric surgeon, he's the head of the department at the Filippo del Ponte Hospital. He's just starting a new exciting initiative in pediatric surgery in this part of the world. He spent his time training in Milan, in South Africa, all around the world, and he's got a special interest in thoracoscopic pediatric surgery. So we'd like to welcome Valerio, who's here to chat to us today.
1: Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure and honor as usual.
0: It's nice to see you again. Valerio, let's, let's dive in and uh, maybe let's start with antenatally. What kind of congenital thoracic malformations can we detect antenatally?
1: Well, I think today uh, congenital thoracic malformations are frequently detected on routine antenatal ultrasound. However, it is not always possible to differentiate with absolute certainty congenital lung and non-pulmonary lesions, since they often have similar radiological appearance. I think amongst congenital thoracic malformation, lung malformation are by far the most commonly encountered perinatal chest masses, but I'm sure we will talk about them later. I think we must not forget the pleural pulmonary blastoma that, although rare, represents the most common primary childhood lung malignancy. And much more frequent and sometimes confused with a CPAM is a CDH, the congenital diaphragmatic hernia. But I believe you've already planned a specific podcast about it. Uh, back to you, neoplastic lesions, although benign, lymphatic malformations and teratoma can be quite easily diagnosed prenatally. And finally, uh, I think several syndromes such as chaos syndrome, scimitar syndromes, and pentalgy of control may affect the thoracic cavity, mimicking or occurring in conjunction with the congenital lung malformation. Uh, by the way, the last patient affected by Penthology control that I've seen was in Johannesburg exactly <laughs> 10 years ago, the first <laughs> and the only.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's a, a depressing condition when mm. you see it, but very interesting. It is. I always think it's one of those conditions that's exciting for the surgeon, but not for the patient.
1: Not really, you're right, unfortunately.
0: <laughs> So as you said, there's obviously a massive amount of different thoracic lesions that we can see antenatally. But I think let's, let's leave out the mediastinal lesions for the moment and just move on to the potential congenital lung malformations. What, you know, there's all these acronyms for these things, BPS, CLE, CECAM, CPAM, BC. What on earth are we talking about? What are all of these
1: different acronyms well. for? I think you're right. I think we should start saying that CLMs comprise a spectrum of anomalies rather than separate entities. You see, there you go, CLM again. So, congenital lung malformation. My apologies. <laughs> <laughs> so, a BPS, a bronchopulmonary sequestration, uh, is a mass of pulmonary tissue, solid or cystic, without connection to the tracheobronchial tree, and with the blood supply rising from the systemic arterial system. Can be intralobar, extralobar, and is usually asymptomatic at birth. But if the feeding vessel is particularly large, may it cause high-output cardiac failure.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: CLE stands for congenital lobar emphysema. Is an overdistension of one or more pulmonary lobes as a result of a focal bronchomalacia causing airway collapse during expiration and distal air trapping. In contrast with BPS, sorry, bronchopulmonary sequestration. <laughs> Most of them are symptomatic before six months of life and require surgery. Now, C-CAM, C-cam are lesions in which abnormal development of the distal bronchoalveolar structure results in a multi cystic lung mass. They have actually been recently classified in five subtypes according to the size of the cyst. And also, they have been recently renamed in CPAM, congenital pulmonary area malformation. Mm. Hyped lesions are defined as a combination of CPAM and BPS. And bronchogenic cysts, BC, are lesions arising from the bronchial tree, usually in a mediastinal location. They are filled with mucus and lined by respiratory epithelium. Most of them are resected due to the risk of expansion, infection or hemorrhage, and even if rare, malignant transformation.
0: If we just chat about the lung lesions, I mean, is there a way to differentiate these antenatally on ultrasound, or do you have to wait until... These kids are delivered before we can really determine what we're dealing with.
1: Yeah, well I think neither ultrasound nor fetal MRI can clearly differentiate these lesions. Nevertheless, both diagnostic tools can detect the presence of feeding vessels originating from the systemic arterial system and thus suggesting the diagnosis of BPS or at least hybrid lesions.
0: Okay, so we can probably at least differentiate bronchopromoreal sequestrations from C CAMS and CLEs. Um, but it's quite difficult then to differentiate c from CLEs antenatally.
1: Yeah, I would say impossible, yeah. Okay,
0: all right. Um, what's the significance of the CVR or the c volume ratio? <laughs> well, yes. What is it? What are we dealing with here? Yeah.
1: Well, CVR stands for cystic adenomatoid volume ratio. It's basically a formula that gives us the fetuses risk of developing hydrops. If CBR is less than 1.6 without a dominant cyst, let's say that more than 95% will not develop hydrops. Uh, while if CBR is above 1.6, the risk for the development of hydrops and the mice, unfortunately, can be as high as 80%. So, nonetheless, the presence of a dominant cyst despite initial CBR values well below the cutoff value of 1.6 has a negative prognostic significance. With several fetuses, as we said, progressing to eye drops, unfortunately.
0: So, Valerio, how do we actually work
1: out the CVR? Yes, basically it's a ratio between the dimension of the lesion uh, multiplied by 0.52 divided by the head circumference. All right. that, that's a formula, it's very simple. But okay. as I said, it's not just the only thing that we need to take into consideration.
0: Yeah, what other things do you look at?
1: As I said, the dominance is probably is the most important feature that we need to... Take into account.
0: Mm. So, when you I mean, we, you said when you look at this ratio, it basically gives us an indication of the risk of a patient developing hydrops fetalis. What exactly is hydrops, and why do these patients get it? Yeah, it's a
1: very simple explanation. Very large lesions of CPAM may lead to compression of mediastinum, vena cava, and heart, causing a valve regurgitation and decreased ventricular function, and eventually hydrops fetalis. Um, it is a relatively rare event, accounting for less than five percent of cases. But as we said before, it can it can frequently cause fetal death if untreated.
0: Okay, so basically, it's kids going into cardiac failure as a result of the pressure uh, or the physiology of the actual cyst, depending upon what it is. Correct. Okay. Um, what fetal treatment is available for hydrops today? I mean, I know you were recently working in a in a fetal center. Uh, what, what things can you offer these patients if they do have high
1: drops? Yeah. Fetal thoracomniotic shunting is offered by our gynecologists in case of macrocystic lesions causing fetal hydrops. And as pediatric surgeons we have had to thoracoscopically remove some of those shunts retained in the chest after birth. Uh, I must admit we have no experience with open fetal surgery, namely fetal resection of RC pumps. And in case of large, high-output systemic vessels in bronchopulmonary sequestration, fetal endoscopic cauterization is a viable, viable option. And clearly, as you said, all these procedures must be done within a recognized and centralized fetal center.
0: c obviously have a, an exponential growth phase, and then they tend to taper off, and some of them even get smaller before birth. Um, how many of these lesions actually disappear before birth, even though we've made the diagnosis
1: antenatally, The question is, do they really disappear? Um, Often we call disappearing the inability of ultrasound to detect, well, to to, to persistently detect such lesions in the second and third trimester. And the fact that they are difficult to see does not mean that they disappeared. Mm. Literature tells us that up to 15% of these lesions might disappear before birth. In our experience, the number is much, much smaller. And that's why we perform neonatal MRI on all our patients, including those with a so-called disappeared lesion. Okay, so I was actually going to ask you what imaging you do uh, for babies that
0: have been born who had an antenatal diagnosis. So you don't, well, you don't bother to do X-rays or ultrasounds. You guys go straight to fetal uh, to
1: neonatal MRI? Uh, not really. My first postnatal imaging modality is the plain chest X-ray. We're actually asking ourselves if these patients really need it. At the moment, we still believe it's a simple and cost-effective diagnostic approach that, even if not able to give us a precise diagnosis, helps us in guiding further imaging workup. Nonetheless, we are trying to increase the use of ultrasound for all neonates with a prenatally detected intraterrheic mass or in the presence of anomalous vasculature. And in this last case, we ask our cardiologists to help us with the ECHO, of course. Mm -hmm. We then, as I said, we then perform a neonatal feed-and-wrap MRI without IV contrast. Okay. Usually within three to four weeks from birth, and we really think it is a great tool that, despite not being excellent as a pre-surgical planning modality, it gives us priceless information about the lesion. I would say priceless and radiationless, of course. In fact, it tells us uh, if the lesion is still there, so that we can appropriately counsel the parents it gives us the indications to put the patient on antibiotic prophylaxis for those who believe in it and of course it delineates the anatomy and the etiology of the lesion we believe well actually we hope that mri could replace CT scan in the near future so far our next imaging modality is indeed the CT scan which is performed by three months of age with sedation and IV contrast. Today's is still the gold standard. We need it, we do it, and we must not proceed to surgery without it.
0: All right, okay. Uh, I mean, you mentioned CT scan at a three-month um, age. What are, what are some of the scenarios that arise in these congenital lung malformations and kids are born? I mean, obviously, they can be completely asymptomatic. Are they always asymptomatic, or is there a group of patients that arrive in respiratory distress. What, what are the possible scenarios that can arise postnatally?
1: Well, you know, these lesions carry unpredictable and vastly different clinical outcomes if left untreated, of course. The vast majority, as you said, of prenatally diagnosed CLMs are asymptomatic at birth. Few of them, I would say less than 10% in our experience, develop severe acute neonatal respiratory distress requiring early surgery. The remaining, well, the remaining if left untreated, may develop symptoms such as cyst infection, hemorrhage, dyspnea, pneumothorax and sudden respiratory compromise later in life with a peak of incidence under one year of age. The literature in the absence of a randomized controlled trial is unconclusive, unfortunately, reporting incidents ranging between 5 and 70%. And it is very difficult for me to make comment about it. In fact, until recently, we have put all our patients on prophylaxis at birth And as we will probably discuss later, we do operate on them at around six months of age.
0: Okay, so you've mentioned quite a few different potential complications of C-cams. Maybe you can just give us some idea about the infection risk for C-cams. What are you guys doing? Are you giving prophylactic antibiotics? Why are you you operating relatively early at six months? What's your current thinking behind this?
1: Well, we still do prophylactic antibiotics for our patients but since we are trying to operate on them before six months of age, probably we are thinking to quit with this uh, habit. So, I'll let you know in five years time, Andrew, what is going to happen to our patient. (laughs) (laughs) And the reason you operate at six months is that to try… Yes, trying to operate before they develop an infection that usually happens when they are nine months uh, to twelve months of uh, age. Okay, so you're basically
0: trying to get in there before they, they get Correct. the complications. Correct. I mean, the other thing you didn't mention a lot about, but there's always this debate, and I must say I've never really found a true answer. You know, do C-CAMs have a malignant predisposition?
1: Uh, well, it's, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult issue. Several studies have demonstrated precursors to bronchial viral carcinoma harbored in c type 1, and PPB, pleuropulmonary blastoma, can be radiologically indistinguishable from CPAM type 4. In other words, pleuropulmonary blastoma type 1 may be diagnosed prenatally, is a de novo tumor rather than the malignant transformation of a pre existing cystic lung lesion, and cannot be distinguished from type 1 and 4 CPAM, let's say, based on imaging. So I would not describe this as a malignant predisposition, rather, a diagnostic dilemma. And only post-surgical pathological analysis allows diagnosis. And I really think that, uh, well, uh, this is the answer to the dilemma, or at least uh, until genetic studies involved with DICER1, for example, are able to differentiate between lesions that invariably will evolve to malignancy. But unfortunately, this has yet to come.
0: All right. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the reason I ask is because it obviously brings up quite a lot of interesting debate about surgery. Um, but I think we'll get to that a little bit later. Um, you know in general i mean you've you've said roughly what your your approach is to these lesions, but there's obviously quite a lot of controversy and there's there's essentially two schools of thought with regards to these congenital lung malformations. the one is just watch for waiting and seeing what happens, and then consider to do elective surgery. Um, the other is obviously to get in there as soon as possible if there is a lesion there and resect. How do you decide which way you're going to go?
1: Yeah, Well, I don't believe we are talking about lesions associated with hydrops or symptomatic lesions at birth, of course. For those the discussion is relevant. The question is, should we operate on asymptomatic lesions and if yes, when should we operate? Mm. Well, I think as you said, we have already mentioned some of the important issues. Uh, definitive diagnosis relies on histopathologic analysis, that's for sure. CLMs carry unpredictable clinical outcomes, if untreated, and approximately one in five cases are diagnosed outside of the natal period incidentally, or because of infection on pneumothorax. In other words, roughly 10 to 30% of asymptomatic neonates will develop an infection within the first year of life, And the presence of infectious symptoms correlates with higher rates of intraoperative and postoperative complications and longer hospitalizations. So I think I've answered your first question, Andrew. Now I have to move to the second question, when to operate? Well, as we said, in the absence of evidence-based treatment algorithm, the recent literature is telling us that elective resections are equally safe in patients 1 to 12 months of age, but early resection within 6 months is associated with decreased operative time and offers the theoretic advantage of compensatory lung growth and of course is furthermore indicated because of the risk of malignancy and because of difficulty in distinguishing CPAM from ppb as we said before so whenever possible in the last 5 years we have operated on before 6 months of age so it is not possible for us to make uh, any judgment um, the few outborn patients treated after six months of age seem to be let's say more difficult cases eh? but of course we don't know if this is due to the older age or because of previous untreated pulmonary infections for example mm-hmm. we really don't know okay
0: so i mean just to summarize essentially if a patient's symptomatic there's no real question you would operate on those patients right if they're asymptomatic you would try and get them to about six months of age? Even less, then even less. Even less, Yes, okay. yes, yes. And then you would obviously operate at well, that Well, I stage. wouldn't
1: say the earlier the better, but three to six months is our well, is your... our, our window. Okay. Yeah.
0: And I mean, how how do you monitor those kids while they're awaiting surgery? What's your follow-up at that time period?
1: Well, we just see them uh, clinically uh, once a month and nothing else.
0: Okay, no chest x-rays? No, no chest x-rays. Just clinical
1: picture? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, okay. Well, of course, the CT scan, uh, as I said. Yeah. Oh, so you do a CT scan in three months yes, t- as yes, a yes. planning for surgery? Sure. Nowadays, I think we are actually doing CT scans slightly earlier than three months. Okay. At around one to two months of age.
0: All right. But that's not really a follow-up. That's to plan your, your surgery right. yeah. intervention. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So then we obviously spoke a little bit about the malignancy potential for these things. And, and this is what I was getting to when I was saying that it it kind of implies... Management, you know, should we be doing lobectomies for CPAMs
1: or just local lesion resection? What's your approach to this? Yeah, well listen, lobectomies for CPAMs have been a surgical paradigm since my early training at the Gasolini Institute in Genoa, where we use well they used to perform open lobectomies, but still lobectomies. Mm. Nowadays I still believe in lobectomies as a radical treatment for CPAM and I personally consider wedge resection a surgical mistake since it goes against the etiological principle of the lesion itself whose origin seems to be related to a peripheral segmental or subsegmental bronchial atresia well for this reason probably I would rather consider a segmentectomy for specific lesions confined to specific pulmonary segments especially if peripherally located having said that I consider segmentectomy a much more difficult procedure with a high risk of postoperative air leaks, bleeding, and recurrence, or probably I should say persistency of the disease. Moreover, the compensatory lung growth probably makes segmentectomies even less attractive. Mm. On the other hand, in case of diffuse lesions involving both lungs, segmentectomies become the first choice, of course, trying to preserve lung tissue.
0: Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So what's, what's your surgical approach? I mean, obviously you can do a thoracotomy or a thoracoscopy. What's your current approach to these lesions? And maybe we can just divide this into the neonatal symptomatic lesions versus the older, I'm going to say elective,
1: yeah. lung lesion removals. Listen, there's no discussion about this question. Nowadays we basically approach all the CLMs thoracoscopically and so far we haven't had to convert to an open procedure. But to be fully honest and to answer your question, in two neonatal emergency cases, we opted for an open approach. But this was mainly due to anesthesiological indications. Okay. And that's it. All right. So maybe we can just briefly discuss. So for
0: CLE, you would do an open operation if they're symptomatic at birth.
1: If it's asymptomatic, you said?
0: No, symptomatic. Yes,
1: I would do uh, probably an open approach.
0: All right, so, and for CPAMs that are symptomatic at birth, you would still do those thoracoscopically?
1: Well, uh, we've done those two cases uh, with an open procedure. Okay. Uh, Probably I would try a thoracoscopic approach nowadays. Okay. Those cases were at the beginning of our training.
0: Okay, but
1: otherwise, essentially, the older children, you would do those all thoracoscopically? 100%, 100%.
0: All right, why do you favor thoracoscopy versus an open procedure?
1: Oh, well, that was a simple question, Andrew. Why, <laughs> why do you prefer the minimal invasive approach? Well, <laughs> because it's minimal invasive. <laughs> Would you prefer a maximal invasive procedure? No, I'm sure not. Now, jokes aside, I prefer thoracoscopy for obvious and worldwide accepted reasons, such as cosmetic and musculoskeletal issues. But I think, moreover, I strongly believe that it gives us more. It, for example, it allows us to share the optical field with other expert surgeons within the theater or elsewhere in the world, thanks to telementoring. Mm. And anatomical structures are magnified by the camera, and probably this is a bit more difficult to explain. Since we cannot exert traction on the lobes, we are forced to approach all the relevant anatomical structures step by step, layer by layer. In other words, we are forced to know the segmental anatomy like the back of our hands. And, mm. help, and that helps a lot, I think. Okay. At least it helped me.
0: Yeah, yeah. As a matter of interest, how do you get the lesion out of the chest?
1: <laughs> That's something not really clean and neat. Well, basically, we we, we have to macerate the lesion um, while still inside the chest. So the pathology is never... Happy about that, of course. <laughs> it's not of <not> our business. <laughs> the microscope doesn't lie. No, not really. <laughs> what are the risks of the surgical approach? So as we always tell the parents, surgery is, is the crucial point of the entire therapeutic process. In fact, we nearly always operate on healthy babies who will have an unremarkable post course. So having said that, the risks of surgery are few, but extremely relevant, unfortunately, Hemorrhage and air leaks can develop acutely, placing the patient at risk of death, or postoperatively, requiring an emergency operation. Other complications include lesions to intrathoracic nerves and lymphatic structure. Uh, a recent audit performed by our group showed no complication after thoracoscopic lobectomies and the persistent chylothorax after resection of a giant right for gut duplication. And I think we've already discussed complication after segmentectomy, so I don't want to waste your time with that, Andrew.
0: Okay, right. So it's actually a relatively safe procedure if done in skilled hands with the necessary experience. It should be. It has to be. Mm-hmm. So one of the other debates is obviously you know, people say that you should operate early because the surgery is easier before the lesion has become symptomatic, whether it's by infection or whichever. Is that really the case or is the
1: surgery the same regards of if they've been symptomatic before or not well as i said before we rarely operate on patients previously symptomatic since we keep our inborn patient on antibody prophylaxis outborn patients treated later in life have shown an increased number and size of peri and peribronchial lymph nodes thus making the procedure slightly more complex
0: you can let us know if you if, if when you stop your antibiotics it gets better or worse You have to interview (laughs) me again in five years' time. All right, then I've got a bit of a provocative question to ask you. I mean, obviously, depending upon where you're in the world and all those things, different people believe that this should be done by different groups of surgeons. Some people say thoracic surgeons should be doing the surgery. Some people say pediatric surgeons should be doing the surgery. What's your feeling about this? Who's really the ideal person to do these kinds of operations?
1: Well, a provocative and very pertinent question indeed, Andrew. Well, we all agree that children are not little adults. And this case is not an exception. I think adult thoracic surgeons perform on average hundreds of lobectomies every year. Much more than the average pediatric surgeon. And I really think that as pediatric surgeons, we should spend time watching them doing lobectomies. But uh, apart from the name of the procedure, I don't think there are many things in common between our and their lobectomies. Different patient sizes, of course. It's 5 versus 70 kilograms. Mm -hmm. Our field is often not wider than 5 by 5. Different approach. Our pure thoracoscopic versus their VATS procedure. Different devices, 3 versus 12 millimeters. Different indications, CLM versus tumors. I could continue, but the answer would be the same. We, as pediatric surgeons, should operate on these babies. And I'm sure you agree with me, Andrew. 100%
0: 100%. <laughs> and I agree. I th- you know, I think the people having exposure to people who specialize in these fields is ultimately very important. It the is. way they approach it, the anatomy, etc. But I also think that pediatric surgeons have a different way of treating the tissue because the truth is that pediatric tissue is very different to adult tissue and Pediatric surgeons are gentle, nice, kind people. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Can I, just as a last question, what, what advice do you have t- for pediatric surgeons who want to
1: start thoracoscopic surgery? Clearly, it is not the kind of surgery one can extemporize. As far as I'm concerned, the path I've walked with Dr. McKinney since we both work at Polyclinic of Milan has been similar to those walked by any surgeon trying to learn a specific procedure or technique or approach. Nonetheless, the rarity of the disease and the complexity of the procedure somehow has forced us to intensify our training. That's why we decided to fully rely on Professor Rottenberg's teachings following his school, uh, I would say, religiously. I still remember his first words, uh, guys. If you want to perform trocaroscopic lobectomy, you'll have to face three main problems. First is anatomy. Second is anatomy, and third, of course, is anatomy again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. I think these days, with telemedicine, as you mentioned, and uh, you know, recently we saw an interesting video describing how that can be put into place with one surgeon operating in one part of the world and getting guidance from Steve Rothenberg in another part of the world actually can really be a, a good learning tool for us. And I can just imagine you talking to us telephonically while we're doing a procedure in Johannesburg, giving advice. You know, these are great tools that we can utilize in this era of new technology.
1: Now that's, that's the future. Well, it should be the present, actually. And you've got my cell phone number, Andrew, so <laughs> just give me a call. <laughs>
0: Uh, Valeria, thank you so much. Do you have any take-home messages with regards to congenital lung malformations? Well,
1: yes, probably. I would say do not try to reinvent the wheel. Let's just stand on the shoulders of giants. And that's why I spent three years with you guys in Johannesburg. Uh, thank you, Valeria. Thanks for your time and all your input. We
0: really appreciate it. and we wish you all the best, the most success with your, your new job here in Varise.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, Andrew, for inviting me and ciao a tutti.
0: Uh, ciao, ciao.
1: <laughs> thank you for joining us on Discover
0: Pediatric Surgery. Let your friends and colleagues know so we can all learn together. Catch you next week.